Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Jeremy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to be talking about hopefully a lot today, but would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Jeremy Kuzmarov. Uh, I'm the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, and uh, I have a background as a historian, and I did a PhD in history at Brandeis University, and my um, PhD thesis was on the Vietnam War and the drug war, and I was looking at the, I interviewed a lot of Vietnam veterans, and I was looking at the uh, well, uh, what I found in my research was that it was very uh, sensationalized in the media and uh, certain politicians had different political agendas that they exaggerated the level of drug use and, and also took it out of context uh, and created this fear that, that the army would return back, an army of drug addicts was going to return back uh, to America. Uh, and actually, most uh, stopped using drugs once they got back to the United States of those who used drugs in Vietnam because it was the terrible environment of the war that led them to take drugs. And it challenged people's attitude, you know, uh, experts' uh, understanding of drugs and how addictive they are, that it's really often the social setting and social context that can shape uh, drug using behavior. But I also, in that project, uh, did some studies, you know, had some chapters dealing with the CIA's. Uh, support for the drug trade in, in Southeast Asia and the Golden Triangle region and how that was covered in the media. And, um, you know, there's a, a wonderful book by Alfred McCoy, a historian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. And he he exposed the CIA's role in the drug traffic. And some of my own research, um, I, I found, you know, because I did a lot of research at the National Archive in College Park, Maryland, and I found um, a lot of, uh, you know, a fair number of incriminating documents pointing to uh, cover up uh, by the State Department about the drug trafficking of American government allies and drug trafficking on Air America planes. Because in the DEA file, there's some reports on cases, uh, you know, some of those cases got dropped where it was American pilots flying it on Air America, uh, which was a civil uh, CIA airline used to ferry supplies to U.S. allies in the secret war in Laos uh, and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So that's how I got into, that was my introduction of a, I guess, naive kid about the corruption of the war on drugs and the uh, government involvement in the drug traffic. And since I've learned a lot more about that, but yeah, I guess I developed a knowledge on the CIA and, and somewhat expertise and then I did another study on clandestine police training programs in the Cold War that built on Douglas Valentine's book, The Phoenix Program. And this looked uh, in a wider historical context at how Phoenix in Vietnam developed out of earlier police training programs in the early Cold War, like in Japan, where they were training the police for surveillance um, and they developed, um, they modernized police forces and helped import technology so they could develop blacklists and better surveillance methods, particularly of left-wing groups during the Cold War. Uh, and it was really a political policing uh, that they were uh, carrying out, even though officially the pretext of the program was to provide um, you know, police aid that could help democratize the police forces of third world countries or countries like Japan that the US had occupied. But they're really assisting clandestinely in political policing. And that it was a cover. It was run by the CIA and a CIA agent named Byron Engel, who had been worked under General Douglas MacArthur in Japan uh, after World War II. 
so that was a further window into the CIA and their covert operation and how they worked with local police forces to carry out uh, surveillance operations in the Cold War and, and recruit uh, assets. And I used to teach a course on the history of the CIA, uh, although I guess the administrator didn't always uh, want that course to be taught. And I had some problems at various universities, but the students were very interested to learn about that. And then, you know, Covert Action restarted. Covert Action magazine was founded in the 1970s by CIA whistleblower Philip Agee, uh, who wrote the book Inside the Company uh, to expose a criminal activity by the CIA. And um, they founded yeah, this magazine that actually outed CIA agents that named, they wanted to name names and expose uh, what they saw of criminal you know, AG, and it was founded by a circle around Philip AG, including Lewis Wolf, who was a journalist who had worked with the underground uh, against the radical press in the Vietnam era and in Southeast Asia. He had been in the Philippines and was involved with underground newspapers. And um, yeah, so this magazine was formed in the late 70s to expose the CIA and out CIA agents who were engaged in criminal activity and manipulation in foreign countries uh, and supporting often dictatorships or coups. And um, the magazine restarted. Philip Ag died. I think the magazine folded in the early 2000s and Philip Ag died around 2008 or so. But uh, Chris Ag is Phil Ag's son. He restarted Covert Action Magazine as a web magazine uh, about five years ago now. And so I applied for a job there uh, during the COVID pandemic. And um, yeah, I started working as a managing editor to, uh, and now we publish about five articles per week and we're trying to yeah, revive that tradition of, of a muckracking journal that exposes the CIA and covert operations as well as uh, Philip Agee was good in analyzing the political economic dimensions underlying US foreign policy interventions and empire. So a lot of our articles address the political economy of U.S. empire, which is not well covered in the media, even more alternative media outlets that do exposés like The Intercept. They're often lacking in their analysis, including in the political economic dimensions that underlie some of these more sordid interventions. So that's one of the missions of Covert Action Magazine based on the uh, inspiration of Philip Agee, who contextualized the CIA as an you know, arm of capitalism and the large financial interests that drive U.S. Uh, imperialistic interventions. You've given me a lot. I got questions. Um, CIA, when was your descent for the CIA stuff? I've been, like I said, the JFK stuff for me and then learning more about the counterculture movement and the operations that were in play from the FBI and just multiple different things, even learning more about MKUltra. I just, the CIA, I don't under, I don't trust the word national security anymore because it seems like it gets broad brushed like the broad brush of communism back in the day. But was your whole thing, the Vietnam War that kind of woke you up to a lot of what the CIA was doing and the trafficking of all that sorts? Or was, did you have a dissenting view somewhere else of learning that the CIA was kind of like overreaching in a lot of aspects? Correct. Yeah. Well, it was really as a graduate student, you know, uh, as I was, you know, getting my own education, um, uh, the the book that really um, awoke awakened me was um, Alfred W. McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, and the subtitle is CIA Complicity in the Drug Trade, and he shows how the CIA was involved 
uh, in the drug trade to finance the secret war in Laos, where the in Laos, the um, U.S. decided to uh, create a secret army, the Hmong, uh, because at first in the 50s, they were trying to prop up these right wing generals because the uh, the Pathet Lao was a communist group in Laos that had led the liberation movement against French colonialism in Laos. And they had worked with the Viet Minh in Vietnam to, uh, together to overthrow the French. And they had fought at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which was an epic victory in which the Vietnamese communist forces defeated the French, which had colonized Indochina uh, going back to the late 19th century. Uh, so the Pathet Lao emerged as a dominant political force in Laos, like the uh, Vietnamese communists, and they were close, closely allied, and they were also instituting uh, initiatives modeled after the Maoists in China, like la uh, significant land reform and uh, promoting women's rights uh, and really helping uh, promoting the development of the, you know, uh, taxing the wealthy and, and developing social programs in the rural areas to uplift uh, the population, promote rural economic development and literacy and healthcare, uh, you know, free healthcare in the rural areas. So they had wide popular support and uh, the you know, U.S. was committed to trying to fight against communism and want to control uh, Southeast Asia and, and expand the U.S. network of military bases and U.S. power and control in Southeast Asia after World War II. So in the case of Laos, they uh, support a right wing uh, uh, military officers and launch coups. But those officers lack any popular support. And they were, uh, you know, the Pathet Lao were poised to take over. So the strategy was to arm clandestinely, have the CIA create their own army among an indigenous group, the Hmong, who was split. Uh, there was a split in certain factions of the Hmong allied with the Pathet Lao and others uh, who had allied with the French uh, joined forces with the Americans. And I guess they were paid off to a degree. And they used the opium, their primary uh, means of income. A lot of them were opium farmers. So the CIA got enmeshed in the drug trade in that way because they were supporting these opium farmers. And that was a source of revenue in the uh, region. So they were financing some of the secret war through the drug trade and opium. And they were using Air America planes uh, to fly it. And yeah, Vang Pao of the U.S. proxy in Laos, and he he drove a Mercedes Benz, and he made a huge amount of money off the drug trade, and they were developing heroin labs, as McCoy shows in his book. And he was uh, Vang Pao was actually arrested, uh, and they they kicked it. The D, there was a DEA, uh, it was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, as a predecessor of the DEA, and they actually kicked him out of the country. They busted Vang Pao, but Vang Pao is America's boy on you know, fighting the secret war, so. They kicked the F Federal Bureau of Narcotics out of the country to allow Vang Pao to continue to promote the drug trade to finance the secret army, the Hmong, and they lasted till 1975. And William Colby, the CIA director, you know, there was a famous PBS documentary, The Vietnam War, and it was like an eight-part series. And I remember, and I used to show it to uh, students, and there was one part dealt with the secret war in Laos and the war in Cambodia. And William Colby, the CIA director, comes on as one, you know, he was interviewed and he said, oh, that, that was amazing. The Hmong lasted for like 10 years and he thought this was a great success of U.S. policy, although the Hmong were all, all decimated. It was a tragic story for them. They're basically used as 
cannon fodder, like basically Ukrainian, they're being used today, and they were they a lot of them died. Another had to leave, flee the country when the communists took over in 1975. But anyways, that's McCoy goes into that history and also the corruption in the South Vietnamese government that the U.S. was propping up with the drug trade. So that's how I was introduced uh, by reading that tremendous book, which I would uh, uh, recommend to readers. And McCoy actually, as a young man, he traveled to the region and he he risked his life. He was a young anti-war activist involved with the, I guess, youth opposition movements of that era. And he went to investigate and he nearly got killed, but he he told the story. And uh, yeah, it's a window into the corruption of the war on drugs and the CIA and how they're in league with these really vicious and, and criminal elements. And unfortunately, we see parallels in other conflicts like Afghanistan or Ukraine today, where the CIA is allied with either um, far right wing forces or, or criminal elements. There are some people I've talked to, and it is some of the theories out there of why we're in Vietnam and the why we're in Afghanistan as well, too, is because of poppies and poppy fields and soldiers guarding poppy. I mean, I've spoken to soldiers who said they were guarding poppy fields for no reason is why just garden poppy fields. And I think a lot of people consider that a conspiracy, which, I mean, this is an interesting question for you, but what would you consider like some of the fact and then some of like, or the official narrative and then some of the more stuff that you found out about Vietnam, for instance, like the myth of the addicted soldier. I think there was an operation that was like golden clear or something like that. They, they had to piss clean before they went back home. That's what I read from like the official thing about soldiers and i think everyone's seen the photos of someone smoking out of a gun or something of that sort that the media took but if that's all media manipulation which i would believe it to be because they've done a lot of that throughout history you can tell in the 60s and 70s things were ramped up i mean reefer madness is a great example as well too but I'm, I'm curious like what if you could give like me like a breakdown of like with like vietnam some of the things that obviously the official story goes by but then what's the real information to it because to be honest, I don't even think movies represent it correctly, and maybe you're not expecting it from movies, but whenever you ask someone of my generation about Vietnam, it's kind of one of those areas where it's like, we went over there, I don't know what the hell happened, and then you know we came back. That's about it. Yeah, well, what I found in my research on the drug uh, trade and drug use was that, I mean, there was drug use uh, in the Army. But uh, so it wasn't entirely you know, false. I mean, that, that was a true image because the by 1970, the U.S. Army was in revolt and the counterculture had really um, uh, seeped into the military. And you had a lot of soldiers who were questioning the war, who were you know, turning on to drugs and were um, you know, refusing to carry out combat orders or even fragging their own officers. But the bias, the media really fixated on the drugs. And yeah, there were a lot of sensationalistic stories and some even attributed drugs, you know, to mishaps in the army, uh, uh, like, you know, Jack Anderson was a very prominent uh, Washington Post columnist. And he was reporting that soldiers were getting high and like jumping out of their own helicopters uh, and that they were so stoned that they couldn't fight effectively. And that was largely distorted. Uh, there were actually, you know, the army investigated that and there were very few incidents. Yeah, that started to smack of reefer madness because it was like, oh, they're smoking drugs and they're, and they're you know, performing, uh, you know, terribly in combat and, and they're sacrificing the ability uh, of the American armed forces to fight. 
And that simply was not true. I mean, alcohol was a much greater problem, even as the counterculture came in, but you still, firstly, among the officers, the officers were of an older generation, and for them, it was all about uh, alcohol. And the army found, uh, you know, the army studied this, and uh, alcohol was a serious problem. And if any military mission were compromised, it was because of alcohol. And I interviewed soldiers, and they said, oh, the, the medic was drunk, and he couldn't treat, you know, wounded soldiers. And you have almost no reported incidents of that with drugs. And actually, soldiers said they preferred to go out on patrol with a guy who might have smoked marijuana the night before instead of alcohol because there's no hangover effect. So there's actually very limited, if any, cases where drugs actually hamper military missions. Um, but the media was reporting that they were embellishing uh, that, and they were also embellishing the numbers. You know, they they there were you know some drug use, especially toward the end of the war. But they made it seem like the entire army uh, was doing drugs. When still, even when the counterculture came in, it was it was it was really a tiny percentage. Uh, and that's what the Golden Flow tests found: a very small number tested positive. Um, and the other thing that was interesting with the Golden Flow is that if because the soldiers were told about the tests before, uh, uh, that they stopped because. The penalty, if you tested positive under that operation, you mentioned golden flow with the urine, they had to stay in Vietnam for another uh, month or something to go through an army drug rehabilitation program. And these guys were counting down their, what they called Daros, state of expected return from overseas. They wanted to get out of that hell hole. So the last thing they want, and they felt that the army drug program was like a prison. Uh, so they stopped cold turkey. And it shows, you know, it's a myth that if you take, like, because, like, the popular image, and you get this in Hollywood film, is if you take heroin, uh, you're automatically become a slave to the drug, and, uh, and that's simply not true. And and in this case, shows because they they wanted to get out of Vietnam, so even if they were using a, a small percentage, may have been used because a, a smokable form of heroin came in, and some were smoking it. They weren't injecting it, but smoking it. But they knew the test was coming, so they stopped. And it showed they weren't addicted. Uh, they just stopped. Uh, they tested negative, and they went home. And the studies found that only 1% of the soldiers who used drugs in Vietnam, only 1% used back in the United States. And it shows that drugs aren't as addictive. And I'm not an advocate for dr using these drugs, but the media creates a distorted perception uh, that that you know people are enslaved. Uh, by taking heroin once uh and it's simply not this shows that that's not the case so but the other thing is the media underreported the anti-war dissent how the army had turned against the war and the reasons for that and they made it seem like they were just going crazy because of drugs and they weren't explaining that the soldiers were taking a drug as a kind of rebellion a generational rebellion and it wasn't really affecting the uh, performance of the army because the the, com the soldiers going into combat, as they, many said, they weren't stupid. You know, they wanted to preserve their lives and those of their friend. They weren't doing drug before going into combat. They would do it in the rear or after, you know, to relax, uh, to come down from the the high and the adrenaline rush of combat. But they weren't actually compromising their fighting performance. 
um, and army, uh, the army's own investigation bore that out. So yeah, the media was very biased and sensationalistic. And I found parallel with the reefer madness where they spread these stories based on rumor that were never verified of soldiers like, you know, doing things like shooting their own men or jumping out of a helicopter to their death who are on drug. But it was simply a rumor that was never corroborated. So. What were the ram ramifications back home of that type of reporting? And also, how did they get away with that, too? I look at the media as being captured. I mean, we know about Operation Mockingbird, I think it's called, um, about covert media assets. But everything I've seen from like the 60s and 70s has been like purporting, like obviously the LSD craze that these hippies are addicted to this drug that's making them bloodthirsty and all this crazy media reporting. But I go, you're, you're talking about troops that are overseas fighting in a war and they're, the media is reporting saying they're all addicted to shit. Like everyone's going to want them back home instead of fighting to keep up the interest of whatever that was going on in Vietnam. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, with the Operation Mockingbird, that's certainly true that a lot of the media was compromised. Um, and the, the caliber of reporting was very poor. Yeah, from what I saw, it was very sensationalistic. Now, some reporters may have been independent i don't think they were in the direct pay of the cia i think they just got cut off. No, time magazine's a big example yeah well that's true yeah well and they they totally underplayed the corruption of the cia in the drug traffic was not reported that's why i took uh independent investigator alfred mccoy uh, to uncover that in his book the politics of heroin uh in Southeast Asia. So, and the ramification, yeah, was to spread hysteria about drug, like in the Referandus era, and to lend support to Nixon's draconian, because Nixon first declared a war on drugs in 1971, amidst this environment where all these sensationalistic articles, the Referandus type stories, are coming out in the media. Yeah, and it built off earlier, there was similar sensationalism about LSD. And they claimed unfoundedly that, you know, people were committing suicide after they took LSD and jumping to their death. And those stories were, were not corroborated. And I mean, most experts will tell you um, that, you know, drug, uh, th there's the concept of set and setting. And that was developed by Timothy, Timothy Leary. Leary. Another drug expert like Norman Zinberg wrote books on this. That Who Nixon had an all-out war against, too, good old Timothy Leary, after he broke out of prison from the Weather Underground. Yeah, but like related to drugs, they explained that your experience with drugs is, is, is um, contingent on the setting in which you take it, your mood, the environment in which you take the drug uh, depends on whether you can have a good or bad experience. But the media made it seem that uh, otherwise happy or normal people ingest LSD and then jump off a building. And, and none of those cases actually was the LSD uh, found to be a cause uh, if, if there was any cases of a, a youth committing suicide. Uh, so th there had been a pattern of sensationalistic stories uh, and then the Vietnam stuff kind of built off that pattern and almost took it to another level. And that led to this uh, hysteria that led to support for Nixon's um, declaration of the war on drugs and the ratcheting up of the drug war. And I found that even some groups on the left, uh, it was fairly, there was fairly bipartisan support for Nixon's policy when it was first adopted. Now everybody's critical of the war on drugs and sees it as a failure. But at the time, there was a lot of uh, momentum for a harder uh, drug policy, even among opponents of the Vietnam War. And that's what that book goes into. So, 
you feel like we would have had that same ramifications if Nixon wasn't president? There wouldn't be this whole onslaught on the war on drugs, um, specifically when it comes to the media's reporting on it? Well, in a way, the media can shape. Uh, well, yes. The media no. has a lot of influence. Like, it's yeah, ridiculous. On one hand, Nixon seized on this for his own agenda because he was intent on waging war against the counterculture and the war on drugs was for him the perfect issue that he could win the support of middle america you know against the unruly counterculture who had seemingly destroyed american values and, and the good name of america uh, so but on the other hand any president might have been responsive to this media hysteria media created hysteria and sensationalism and some of it may have been uh, with some of that reporting, I don't think they're all on the CIA payroll. It's just the papers want, you know, they they uh, they they want sensationalistic story because that sells papers, so or sells newspapers or magazines. So uh, it's an issue where uh, it's very easy to embellish. Uh, you know, reporters may be encouraged to embellish or create sensationalistic headlines or narratives just to sell sell papers i mean as a, as a business so uh, well it's like even I, in the vietnam even into the vietnam photo the famous napalm girl you know they cropped off the guy who was standing all the way off to the left who was just walking with his camera because they thought it would look bad for optics wise if you had this soldier look like he was not giving a shit about this girl that was covered and burned from napalm running through the street the full photo shows this guy standing over there now if that's just them thinking about like what the ramifications are going to be from that photo being released in the public's reaction to that i don't know but i don't know the way that like you can manipulate a photo even the clip on tie that was on the floor when robert f kennedy was assassinated was cropped out of the official time magazine i don't think it's all the media assets or all this i don't think they're all on the payroll of things i just think that's like you know if you're reporting a story about an airline airline or whatever and their planes are crashing and the company or business has a financial interest or dealing a relationship with that airplane thing it's much like today they're just not going to report on it it's like this investigative journalism to me i look to you guys who run your guys magazines that actually talk about articles but you really don't come across in major news stories because of the fact it's like you guys aren't in pocket of anybody you know what i mean absolutely yeah and i mean i think there's also a pressure to sell a newspaper so you want to you know so you want to shock people uh, or alarm them, and then they may be more prone to uh, buy uh, because they think this is really something dangerous uh, that they need to know more about. So I think it's just kind of a technique of marketing in a way, but it, it cuts from the truth and it has real significant political implications that I detail in that study. Uh, the escalation of the war on drugs, which has proved to be a very destructive policy, um, you know, as far as causing mass incarceration in the United States, as far as uh, affecting U.S. foreign policy and leading to, you know, military, unseemly military interventions in third world countries, while the CIA is actually all the while supporting the drug trade. So it never actually gets, uh, uh, you know, reduced. Drugs keep flowing into the United States. And the CIA is supporting often most corrupt elements, whether it's in Laos or South America or Mexico. Uh, so it's just a futile policy. And it's based on exaggerated view of the ravages of these drugs. Um, but it keeps going even to today. Now, 
we talk about the financial interest of the CIA and the war on drugs, or there's the drug trafficking in general, but what about the other usages for some of these drugs? Now, we know, like, I, I reached out to you because I came across your article about Frank Olson and MKUltra, which we'll get to, but I've seen them figure out another method to use some of these drugs as well, too, and whether you consider that they brought drugs into certain neighborhoods to get people addicted in certain situations, which I do believe. I've talked to some people who've written books like uh, John Potash, The CIA Drugs Against Us. I believe that. I mean, bringing in drugs into some neighborhoods, and I think we know about like they were trafficking cocaine in bodies as well, too. Um, I'm just curious if you think that like when did the financial interest or when do you think that there was something else besides the financial interest that stepped in? Like when did we start seeing them experiment with drugs and really start to hype up the war against like the hippies, for instance, you know, Operation Midnight Climax, if you know what that is about drugging people and brothels and things of that sort. There's a lot of stuff where it's like, I don't justify any of those actions. And even reading them, I go, that sounds insane. But that's another issue with like projects like MK Ultra. I mean, using LSD on people, whether they're witting or unwitting. You know, they destroyed the documentation to be able to figure out to what extent, how far they really went with this thing. And it kind of scares you to think where could have it have gone? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, there was some really sinister thing that went on uh, with the MK Ultra and these illicit uh, LSD testing. And that was just pure abuse of power. Um I don't know. Uh, Gary Webb wrote an important book called Dark Alliance on the CIA and the Contras. And he pointed to a connection between some of the Contra drug runners and, you know, Freeway Ricky Ross was a big time crack dealer in South Central LA. So he presented a direct connection between the corruption of the CIA and the drug traffic in Central America in the 80s and involvement in the Contra War and the flood of crack cocaine uh, in, in South Central LA. Uh, whether that was deliberate plan to uh, you know, drug African-Americans to keep them weak. Some have alleged that. I don't know for sure uh, you know, if that was a de deliberate plan, but that was clearly a byproduct. I mean, it's what you would call blowback yeah. of the CIA operation gone amok or, or alliance with criminal groups that end up you know, trafficking a huge amount of crack cocaine, which is a dangerous drug. I, I don't want to underplay the health uh, da damage. It's simply that from my studies uh, and reading of uh, medical and psychiatric literature on drugs, there are some exaggerations about those ravaging effects that fuel the draconian policies of the drug war. But I wouldn't suggest that they're benign uh, or recommend anybody smoke crack. It is bad for health. Now, some people had uh, very bad, uh, you know, some of the images you see in the media uh, of junkies are people who are malnourished and in, in, in terrible health. Uh, it, uh, they're in that way, not necessarily because they use drug. A healthy person, if somebody's very healthy, eats well, exercises, they could use drugs and look healthy. Uh, so that that's one distortion sometimes in some articles, but... But yeah, uh, the, the web study is important in showing direct connection with the spread of, of crack cocaine in, in South Central LA in the 80s and 90s because of the CIA's corruption and involvement in the Contra war and with drug runners in the Nicaraguan Contras who are conservative counter-revolutionaries that the CIA supported against the left-wing Sandinistas.
Why do you think it scared more people from drugs rather than demand that the government do something about the infestation of the drugs? Well, it led to the uh, what are you uh, you're talking about? If they're the talking country. about a lot of people being afraid of hippies and a lot of people being afraid of drugs like LSD and all these other types of things. That, that, that but where's the why wouldn't you just demand that the government, you know, do something about the people that were addicted to it instead of being scared of it? Well, yeah. The, the uh, firstly, yeah, the government should stop its own involvement yeah. and genuinely fight the drug-related corruption. Uh, but they, you know, profit from that. And I think the the media, um, you know, demonized the hippies because the hippies challenged the whole values of society. You know, the hippies were pacifists. They questioned U.S. foreign policy and the ethic of capitalism, and they were tr trying to develop an alternative lifestyle. Uh, that went back more to the Native Americans, you know, as far as the idea of being respectful of nature and not just trying to exploit nature for economic gain, to develop commune where they live more communally and not based on you know, uh, individuals profiting, but trying to pool their resources together and share it and to live a more peaceful existence. And that their whole worldview went against the ethic of capitalism and they were seen as a threat and something negative uh, and they, the media portrayed them very negatively. And I found that in my uh, study, because uh, in my book, I include a chapter on Hollywood and some of the distortion they promoted in various films about drugs. But I also found uh, that in a lot of those films that I was looking at, a lot of them were films from the 70s and 80s, the hippies were presented very, very negatively. And some of the crime shows would often feature hippies who were criminals and they are often presented even in film like Forrest Gump they're uh, the hippie leaders are presented as hypocrites and abusive of women and you know uh, just hypocritical in the way they behave and not genuine in their opposition to war and uh, stuff like that and it's just very very common and you could um, anyone can observe that they're often portrayed very negatively and I think that's because they were like, you know, they were subversives who challenged the uh, dominant um, values and, and, and the life ways of the capitalist elite and the worldview of the capitalist elite. And they would pave the way for a more peaceful society that was more respectful of nature, less materialistic, less warlike. And somehow that's uh, that's a threat. And there's really nothing negative about it. They always play up the excess. I mean, yes, there were excesses as far as some of the drug taking, uh, and you know, as far as the sexual revolution overall was good, but it, it could lead to certain excesses uh, or abuses toward women. And those excesses are always magnified uh, as, as if that's embodiment of the hippies in general and their pacifist worldview, which is not the case. Does that, I mean, when did your, obviously you mentioned McCoy's book, but I mean, how hard was it for you to change kind of the notions that might've been instilled into you about some of these things? I mean, you start realizing that there might be a sliver of a little bit of this, but the magnitude on it gets ramped up to like a thousand. Like I was, I mean, I, I had a grandpa that served in Nam and everything, and he would always talk about communists and things of this sort. But then you kind of start learning like a little bit more from other researchers who have really done work and notice that that brush got painted on like everything. 
it makes you rethink a bunch of stuff. And, you know, we talk about drugs in today's time and marijuana has become more legalized, but there's still like a large stigma behind stuff. And you just see the propaganda that gets unleashed, not in today's time, but back in the day. I mean, through films, government had influence in there. Hell, mob had influence in there. But you start realizing that everything you've seen on television that might have been instilled to you, it's hard to change your notions from, I guess, preconceived notions that you already have before. So I'm wondering for you, how hard was it when you're coming across all this documentation, you're coming across other people's research, and you're kind of challenging things that obviously go against the way society is thinking as well, too? Yeah, very well put. Yeah, yeah, I guess, as you say, you start to think critically about everything once once you see how... Uh, everything's a lie that's what it is yeah and i mean these are good people but uh they subscribe to certain dominant assumptions that uh when they're subjected to scrutiny you start to realize that those assumptions may be flawed uh and that's what i i found yeah i mean i had the luxury of having a lot of time to read and look into these topics and doing a graduate degree uh, where I was, uh, you know, devoting a year or two exclusively to research, deep research uh, in the library and reading and, and reading old documents uh, and, uh, you know, doing some you know, research in the National Archive as well as reading books. So, yeah, you, you start to uh, really see that uh, people are conditioned to think certain ways uh, and that, the, that, you know, serve the interests often of the powers that be, you know, they want everybody to just think of the world in simplistic terms. And in that time, you know, the communists were bad and were good, or today, you know, Russia's bad and we're good. And obviously, uh, you know, when you subject that to scrutiny, you find that that's just, uh, at best an oversimplification at, at worst, something is wrong. And um, yeah, it's just all about conditioning and manipulation. And and the CIA is really specialist in that. And actually, William Casey, who was the CIA director in the 80s, said, we'll have been successful when everything the American people believe is wrong <laughs> or the reverse of what it is. He actually said that. And it's been corroborated that he said that. So it makes you, you know, start to realize that they're they're conditioning you. And to escape that in a way is liberation because uh, you can be free uh, in trying to live your life in an ethical way and not necessarily just going along with the herd uh, and, and falling into those traps. And it leads to some destructive behavior uh, because, you know, it could lead you to to fight in a war like Vietnam that in the end you wouldn't be proud. I mean, a lot of those veterans, when they came back and had time to think about it, they weren't really proud of what they did. They they did some bad things over there, and they found different ways to try and deal with that. But um, so if you can escape the conditioning, you won't end up doing something uh, bad to other people because you've conditioned, uh, and you can try and do right and, and educate others or help uh, free the mind of other people uh, and live a lifestyle uh that's more ethically based uh, because ultimately the corporation that that rules society uh, are extremely unethical and uh, do t t terrible things to other humans to get ahead. It's what you so see a lot in movies. When they're is... bidding, then, then you're doing bad things uh, to help them. 
it's what you see a lot in movies is the grandpa who fought in the war, who was like a patriot and you never could say a dissenting view, always drank Coke because Coke and all that relationship with the military. I don't know if you know a whole lot about that, but then you kind of like, I started realizing there's a lot of people like the GI press that were military people speaking out about being over there and they weren't patriots at all. Actually, a lot of them that came back, some of them that came back at least were communists a little bit too, that had started having communist views because they realized that, it wasn't the same thing that the America was spouting off if you were here and you were stuck in this little bubble, which that just makes you think, wait, what? And then like a lot of people don't know that kids might, they don't teach you that in the history books. The history books teach it. This is, there's this communist fear you got to be scared of, or there's this issue that we had to go fix and America came out and triumphed. And then you kind of start learning when you get out of school and you're like, oh, wait a minute. So that was all a lie. It was all just a funny little narrative, a good little story with a hero. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at the history, I mean, with the communist movements that, that you know, like in Vietnam or Laos, you know, they captured the nationalist movement and they led the opposition to and, and liberation from colonialism. And those communist leaders like Ho Chi Minh was comparable to George Washington in the United States. And that's how he's viewed among the Vietnamese people. Uh, and then, I mean, you can look at the communist system. Its goal was to promote greater human equality. And in the Asian context, you know, they were promoting uh, rural economic development and literacy and healthcare, and that's why they had a lot of political support, and that's why America was really on the wrong side. They were fighting uh, an unwinnable a war. Uh, so yeah, it's important to learn that history uh, and to try and look at world politics uh, independently from the propaganda we're, we're subjected to here. Because if you just fall in line, it leads to you end up supporting disaster, you know, absolute disaster like Afghanistan or Ukraine. I mean, now the big thing in Ukraine, we're told to think, oh, the U.S. is supporting freedom in Ukraine and we should be providing billions of dollars in arms. And then when you look into it, you know, that government that's in Ukraine was installed in a coup d'etat and that many of its supporters are Banderites who worship Stepan Bandera who was a Nazi collaborator in World War II, and America is actually financing you know, neo-Nazi elements, um, and that you know the people of, of Eastern Ukraine had voted for their autonomy, and Russia had come in to, to help them after the Ukrainian army was attacking them. And the UN reports uh, point to 80 to 85% of shellings of uh, civilians being carried out by the Ukrainian military. So, I mean, once you can see that a little more clearly, you're not just go, going to go ahead and support sending all the billions of weapons. And everybody who's supporting that, I mean, it's something shameful. They're, they're supporting a, a neo-Nazi government. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if they think back, uh, I mean, this is something shameful. Those of us who, who, who understand the situation better are not going to put ourselves in a position of supporting neo-Nazis and a doom cause there, just like in Vietnam. And I think we're on the right side of history uh, in the end. So that that is something liberating and important. If you can cut through the propaganda and think for yourself, you'll end up making smarter decisions and being on the right side of history. And you could, you know, be proud years later when you have kids or grandkids, uh, and that's a dark chapter in the history book. And you say, no, I, uh, I was, uh, I mean, I'll be proud to tell my grandkids that in 2003, when the Iraq war broke out, I was part of the anti-war protest. I was uh, in Boston and my school, the Brandeis, we linked up with other schools 
to protest what I think is another major crime in history. Uh, so I'm already yeah, a pessimist right about side of history. I'm a pessimist. I said I'm a pessimist about society. Don't ask my views on that. I can tell you that much. I've learned too much about the past to say that we're just yeah, repeating but at the least same you could bullshit. be on the right side of history and set the standard in your family or you know. Oh God, dude, I'm shouting from the rooftops. Ain't nobody listening, dude. I'm telling you, I'm looking exactly at the 60s and 70s. I'm like, it's the same shit, just in a different technology. That's it. T Twitter, all this is just different. That's the only thing, but it's the same manipulation. It's the same lies. It's the same battles in different places it's all it, nobody's doing anything about it which is just nuts to me because like you, you you start and look you just look at a history book or at least look at some of the people that have actually taken you know the counter press movement look at that counterculture movement. there's still that today that's just online but now it's individual groups and we just boil it down to left and right i'm like oh guys it's so much bigger i'm a deep state believer but not like illuminati i mean i don't know depending on what you're looking at but i just go we have a really corrupted sense of government because it's tied with so much in the things that it should not be tied to like i think we need a whole root out of our whole political system but sadly i don't think that's going to happen um at all i think they, they're thinking this is the best way to run because it makes some money and that's you know i don't well, know that's I'm, true yeah I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist like i said but i want to ask when did you come across mk ultra and maybe you can explain a little bit about uh your work on frank olson as well too because i think that he's really important and i didn't learn about him until I was reading the church committee and they investigated into that, but I think they came up with like inconclusive evidence that the CIA was responsible or something like that. And his son's been in a lawsuit. Well, yeah, I think we know quite a bit about the case of Frank Olson and that he was murdered by the CIA. Um, the, for years, they promoted the story that he had ingested LSD. I, I think they uh, fed off the misinformation about LSD and sensationalism because when it, when it was clear that there was some foul play, that's when they developed this cover story that he had, he was given LSD and jumped to his death after a bad trip. But that was proven uh, to be a lie. And you know the CIA they lie they're pathological liars. Um, and we know that was a lie because when Alice Olson, when Frank Olson died, well, and just to give readers the background, Frank Olson was a CIA biochemist who worked at the Fort Detrick lab in Maryland. And that's where the U.S. set up its germ warfare program under Franklin Roosevelt in World War II, because uh, Germany and other countries had developed um, a biological weapons uh, program, and the U.S. felt they had to develop their own. And then shamefully, at the end of World War II, the, under the Operation Paperclip, the CIA and U.S. recruited Nazi scientists, including the head of the German... German Warner von Braun was in there. Yeah, uh, and Kurt Blom was the head of the German uh, germ warfare program that had used Jews as uh, tests for these sadistic... Uh, to, uh, experiments with germ warfare and then they recruited this grade a war criminal to work at fort dietrich uh as well as warner von braun who had developed the v2 rocket and he became a pioneer in the uh, creation of nasa and the german missile and rocket program uh, the american missile and rocket program but fort dietrich they were developing biowarfare and Frank Olson was a, uh, a brilliant uh, scientist who was recruited into the CIA to work on these biowarfare programs where they're developing like anthrax and disease-infested uh, disease flies that they could uh, put in another country they're at war with. Uh, 
And then it is believed that they deployed germ warfare in the Korean War and that Frank Olson traveled to Korea at least twice. And he seems to have had knowledge about the deployment of germ warfare, which the U.S. government has denied to this day, but it was exposed by an Australian uh, journalist named Wilfred Burchett, who was actually the first journalist to expose the atomic bomb uh, because there was heavy censorship around the atomic bomb and after it was dropped. And he was the first Western reporter to get into Hiroshima and to report that the radiation was very, uh, uh, had terrible effects. Uh, on the people of Hiroshima, because initially they were totally whitewashing uh, the harm bred by the radiation. So uh, Wilfred Bircher is one of the greatest journalists of the 20th century. And then he later exposed the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam and did a lot of firsthand reporting uh, in Vietnam. So anyway, he reported this, and then some pilots who were captured admitted to, that they had did uh, uh, launch uh, pest-laden bombs um jolly west comes in right there if you look up jolly west that was his he was in charge of hypnotizing or unbrainwashing is what they called it of some of those pilots and people that fought over there because they were saying that they were brainwashed saying we used bioweapons i was like oh so wait they uh, we did use bioweapons and they, they unbrainwashed them that's crazy yeah that that was a cia disinformation to make people believe all oh, these pilots had been brainwashed in communist china and we never did that but that was a disinformation operation it's very likely, uh, with 99% confidence, that the uh, U.S. did deploy the germ warfare. Actually, there was an independent study led by a team of British scientists, uh, and the director of that study was Joseph, Dr. Joseph Needham, and he said with 99% confidence that the germ warfare was deployed, and he said that before he, before he died, they asked him, how confident are you? Uh, of the accuracy of your study, and he said something like 99%. Uh, and uh, so uh, Olson very likely uh, was knew about that. And then <laughs> he hinted to his wife that he had some misgiving. And now Olson also uh, saw and witnessed thing with the Operation MK Ultra, where they're doing all kinds of unethical drug tests, including with German pr uh, prisoners of war, because he went to uh, some German POW camps after the war, and these were uh, Nazi generals, but they were doing really unethical thing like pumping them with drugs, and a lot got killed. And he was like, "This is too much for me." And uh, and so he hinted to his wife and some others that he he couldn't take this anymore, and he was going to uh, quit his job, and that you know, and, and he even said this smacked of what the Nazis were doing, and now we're doing it. Is that that's what the Nazis were known for, unethical medical experiments on Jews, among other crimes. Uh, that was some of the worst things they, they did. And yeah, and he said, but then he said, oh, I made a terrible mistake because uh, he realized who he was up against, that these people, since he was becoming a whistleblower and they couldn't trust him, that his life was now in danger. And then he was found, you know, uh, he was, uh, well, on uh, in November twenty eighth, uh, nineteen fifty three, he uh, fell out of the tenth uh, floor of the Statler Hotel and he was killed. <coughs> fell with giant air quotes, please. Fell. They claim that he jumped and committed suicide, and then then when it was clear that 
something had gone amiss. The CIA developed the story, oh, he had been drugged with LSD, and then he jumped. But then his son, and uh, so fast forward to 1994, his son um, ordered a forensic reinvestigation of the body. So they dug up the body because it was all too painful for his mother, Alice. She became like apparently an alcoholic and they couldn't do anything when she was still alive. But when she died, the son ordered a forensic investigation and they brought some top forensic scientists and he determined that it was a homicide and that the cause of death was not from the fall, but was a blunt force trauma to the head. And that he had very clearly been beaten with a pipe or a bar and killed and then thrown out the window. And it was actually impossible for him to have jumped because uh, the way the, the, the glass in the hotel, it, for him to have cracked the glass and broken through, it were, required a running start. And he was in a tiny room. So he'd have to run all the way down the hall. And his roommate, Robert Lashbrook, who was a CIA scientist, actually, he said he never even heard or saw him jump out the window, which was a lie, that he only woke up after. And that's when he called the police. But actually, he didn't call the police first. He called Sidney Gottlieb first. And, and he said, he's gone. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the evidence was so clear that this was a murder. And it's believed there's a book by Hal Alberelli Jr. called A Terrible Mistake. Uh, oh, recommend. Hank. Hank. Uh, Hank, yeah. Hank Alberelli Jr. And uh, he cracked the case, basically. And he said there are these two CIA mafia hitmen who, who were likely uh, behind it, who were the ones, because one was actually found to have been working at the Statler Hotel as a as a uh, doorman or guard or some, some security position. They call it a coincidence. That's what they call yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and he was a known CIA mafia hitman. And it's believed that he was the one who beat him and threw him out. But we know he was beaten over the head with a bar and thrown out. And that followed the model. The, the CIA assassination manual instructs assassins to, that's how to kill somebody and then make it look like a suicide. Why do you think, that, like even when the church committee investigated, they just came up with like inconclusive evidence to support anything like that? And I go, well, you came up with evidence, but it just didn't fit the official narrative. But whenever they say something like it's an investigate, like Dag Hammarskjöld's investigation, for instance, the UN looked into it because of Alan Dulles and Patrice Lumumba. And they're at the ending of the report in like 2014, it was like inconclusive evidence. And I go, anyone that knows what you guys do in your free time when it comes to getting rid of people that have a dissenting view, anybody that's working in your midst that might have a dissenting view or want to blow the whistle on something, they know what that means. They means that it was you, but to the public, they see inconclusive evidence and they just kind of dust it off. So it's like an inner message. And I, I hate to make that correlation, but you see so many of these investigations were like, well, you have all the evidence to support that Frank Olson was thrown out of a window, but what you guys going to not give the official, here's what happened and we're sorry this happened. You're just going to be like, eh, we'll just let it go. People will figure it out. Yeah, well, there's a lot of cover-ups and you know they're still afraid maybe of the uh, people and agency behind it. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of governing commissions are just whitewashes, uh, and the facts become more and more obvious uh, to the public at large. And that's what you know. There's such a gap between. That's why the public has less and less trust in the government uh, because you see this kind of corruption and cover up time and time again. Sadly, you like. I mean, through all your writings and all your research, and I'm sure you look into other things as well too that we haven't mentioned. But do you like? Do you have a conspiracy line 
Like there's a few things that I even said, like that sounds really conspiracy, like a heart attack gun. But then you're watching the church committee and they show a heart attack gun. And I'm like, you know what? Everything's game. I'm I'm open to everything now. I'm looking at everything. I'm, I strictly go by what I can prove through a document, which is hard. But uh, when you're looking at a lot of things, I go, I just don't throw it up against, you know, I don't say that that's not true or that sounds crazy because I've seen so much of what our CIA does. I mean, 600, I think, speculated attempts on Castro's life and the ones that I can show to you, the 20 that I've been able to find through documents, an exploding seashell where I'm like, what the f like? You guys have some creative bunches in the CIA to start thinking of some of this thing. And then you learn about all their drug testing and Operation Midnight Climax and so much that goes on. I'm curious if through all your research, I mean, obviously you've been more open to hearing some crazy things out there, but those things end up becoming true. So it's like, what do you do then? Like even when we're talking about with the brainwashing of Jolly West and these people that fought in this war about using bioweapons, a lot of the public doesn't know that. They're going to search up something and it's going to give them the first article. It's like a Wikipedia thing. That's not going to tell them the truth at all. But it's like, how do you find explaining some of these crazy things to people that have not even gotten there yet? That's a very good question. Uh, and I would make a few points. Well, one is, yeah, truth is often stranger than fiction, as you say. <laughs> uh and yeah uh two yeah and you know the you, you can't imagine something until you find it's actually true uh two is that the cia deliberately um tries to stigmatize and marginalize conspiracy theorists and make that into a, a bad term and that there was actually a memo after the warren commission report uh, 1035 960 yeah they issued a memo instructing the media to denigrate anybody who questioned the Warren report as a conspiracy theorist and a kook and a <laughs> excuse me crazy person uh and that's what they do that's their technique for uh blocking investigation uh, you know into the truth and uncovering criminal activities and uh, you know i guess you know academia certain topics are off limits and uh, that's unfortunate. I mean, uh, academics just fall into line. Uh, I guess they're afraid of being branded a uh, crazy person, and that, that could affect their standing in, in academia or in the mainstream media. So you don't see any of those outlets um, doing real investigations and uncovering uh, the truth. And that's uh, sad. I mean, it allows the criminals to get away with their major crimes. And that's why it's important for people like us to try and alert the public or even people we're friends with or family or students um, and to, you know, encourage them to think for themselves, investigate independently and to show them how the public, how the government uh, or, you know, through its control of the media and and um, and education can indoctrinate or, or suppress the truth. And yeah, to point out that Wikipedia has connection with intelligence agencies and uh, has been manipulated in many, uh, not all. I mean, it, it can be a very good source of information. I mean, I use Wikipedia for a lot of research, but I know that some things on the Wikipedia have been manipulated and there are some. 
it's good it's good if you want to know when john lennon created the song but if you're trying to find out if the government killed jfk you might you don't even check that one <laughs> or there. if they killed john lennon because i have an article coming up about that yeah david whelan was on my show about it he's the one that made the documentary about the potential second shooter um he's getting a lot of publicity it's i mean there's a lot of evidence to support oh that. i'd like to see that yeah yeah because there's a new book i reviewed uh and it's likely that second shooter had worked for the cia in cuba um, Bay of Pigs. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jose Padorma that was the front desk yeah. bay guy, he's not the same one that's the Jose Padorma in the Bay of Pigs. I hope that's okay. Yeah, I found that out. The David Whelan, um, he did a documentary. It was the there was a documentary about the John Lennon assassination where they actually recreated the whole event that happened that night. Oh, I've got to watch that. Yeah, if you can send that to me where I could watch that, I'd like to see that. I, I can send you his episode. I just got to figure out what the documentary was called. Okay, yeah. He send broke it down for like two hours. I mean, that guy should be on major. He's, his book's coming out later this year, but uh, he interviewed like Mark Chapman's friends and family. He interviewed Mark Chapman's wife. He interviewed like his research. He lays it out bare. But that's another thing. Like when I try and tell people like about like the Kennedy stuff, because that's where my interest is. I go like people go, oh, you think the government took out the president? I go, we do it in other countries. Why is it so crazy here? But I just say, if you look at the 60s and 70s, you had JFK, RFK, MLK, Malcolm X, John Lennon. Like it was a tool of their arsenal at the time. You know, they just changed it over and they've done plenty of other assassinate. I mean, I put up Hale Boggs' death in there who died over Alaska in a plane and then Dag Hammarskjöld that the UN decided to look into. Like it was, there's not that many lone assassins. We haven't really heard about any since, you know, there's all the sixties and seventies happened to be where all of them spurred out and they all had to be doing crazy shit. Like one guy's reading catcher in the rye. Come on now. Like, I'm sorry. He's never read that book before. I'm just questioning a lot of this stuff. I'm curious. So well, would that's you- good. Yeah. Cause I I've done a lot of research into these areas and I have some art, some forthcoming articles, like even the Hale Boggs assassination and you know, Hale Boggs came, he was, he started speaking out that the Warren commission was a fraud. And, you know, he tipped off Jim Garrison uh, about the CIA's role in the Kennedy assassination and then he turns up dead in a suspicious plane crash, and two people confess that, that this was like a mafia uh, to mafia involvement, uh, or, you know, people with mob backgrounds. So, uh, yeah, there is a, a very clear pattern. And, and around the JFK assassination, many people got killed uh, who were going to, you know, expose or had too much knowledge about the plot. And I, I have a piece that'll be out on the 60th anniversary. The JFK assassination, yeah, that looks at the role of uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Texas uh, power brokers who were supporting Lyndon Johnson's career. Uh, I, th- I think they played a central role with the CIA in Kennedy's assassination. So, uh, and as you say, yeah, the Robert Kennedy assassination, it's clear, I mean, that he was shot from behind and that it was this, uh, very likely this guy, Thane Cesar, who had a connection with the CIA. And the security was run by Robert Mayhew, who was a CIA a guy. Cut out the work for the mob on those, some of those plots. Yeah. So these were po- all political ass- coordinated conspiracies, you know, political assassination. And it, it changed America, the American political uh, landscape considerably. The country shifted far to the right after those uh, killings, uh, the deaths of all the liberal leaders. Um, so it has huge political ramifications. 
And I think it's it's part of American exceptionalism to believe that assassinations only occur in uh, foreign countries and, you know, in Russia or somewhere. But it's uh, our politics is very violent and we're no better than other countries. I mean, we have this uh, illusion of great democracy, but I mean, it's the best democracy money can buy. And then, you know, if you challenge the power uh, interest too much, you're going to get killed. Uh, so it's not really that different. And that would undercut that than other many countries around the world. And that would undercut the rationale behind the U.S. foreign policy intervention and imperial imperialism, because that's always framed as, oh, we have to spread democracy. You know, we're, we're supporting democracy against autocracy. But if you start to question the nature of American democracy and you see that, uh, you know, change of power can be achieved in many cases through violence. And a lot of the, some of the best leaders in American history were assassinated. Um, you see that, you know, America is not that different from Russia. And, uh, you know, it's an illusion that the, the, the U.S. is actually promoting democracy. Yeah, but see, people and... people don't like that. People like I, I brought this up to uh, probably an old school Democrat. Like I said, I'm not a right or left person. I would consider myself a patriot, but not the yeah. textbook patriot of like all these people that will never say anything bad about the government. I think if you love your country and you want it to do better, you know it can do better, then you would try and investigate all these claims and see what's real and want to change some of these things as well, too. That's why I consider myself Absolutely, yeah. A you want good people running the country. You don't want criminals who come to power and uh, in crimes and covered it up and, and, and they uh, one lie begets another lie. So I, I agree. Uh, what you're doing is, uh, what I try and do is in the best interest of the country and out of love for the people uh, so that they would have good leaders. Can I ask about, do you think journalism's dead? I mean, not your form of journalism for your guys' magazines, but just like, it's not an incentive to want to speak out like this. It's not an incentive to want to dig into the deep minutia of certain articles and certain histories and talk about them. You're not going to get a world stage with that view. And some people, like I understand if you have a family and you're reporting a story and someone's like, you can't run that story, you're going to lose your job. I mean, it's hard to stick by your morals and your convictions to want to do that. But also, I don't blame the people that do those types of things. Um, Ed Allwood is, is uh, a guy I spoke to who used to work for like CNN and all these things. And he explained what was going on back there. He wrote a book about dark journalism, basically. And he's like, there's not an incentive. And I get it. I understand. And I mean, if you're single and you, you're doing it, you're writing articles and you feel like you got to stick to your morals, then you can. But a lot of people who have families and are reporting stories, it's so much easier to just go with the way that the narrative is or write you know something that's not necessarily big like let's write something about oxyclean or something that's what they'll do because it's safer to them they're not going to jeopardize their careers the same reason i don't get mad at academics that go conspiracy when you start mentioning mk ultra or other things because i've spoken to academics who research mk ultra specifically and they'll tell you it's real they'll tell you the claims that are real they'll tell you a bunch of things that are real so it's just about i mean do you think journalism academia all these things I mean, your career shouldn't be so fragile where writing something that's a different view than what has been pitched in history, even though there's evidence to support your claim, you know, you shouldn't feel like your job's in jeopardy. What kind of free press is that? Exactly. Yeah, you hit on it. Uh, I agree with everything you said. You know, it, it's an illusion of a free press. <laughs> and a lot of it is self-censorship. Yeah, people are really, and it's 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 like a totalitarian society. I mean, people are in a state of fear. 
and I, I worked in higher education and I saw this and they're, they're deathly afraid. And so they self-censor, they select topics to research that are non-threatening and that are often not that important. And they deliberately, they're happier that way. They can write a book that's not going to get any attention. Uh, and that's good because they preserve their job and, you know, but they've had no real impact on changing things or exposing real corruption and evil. Uh, so yeah, it's, a, um, it's a sad situation. Um, and I think most of the media, unfortunately, is compromised when it comes to, yeah, they can do very good reporting on, on, on numerous issues, uh, but certain issues are off, off topic, like the ones we're discussing today. Yeah. If you take up these, well, you won't get it published. Or if you miraculously, I mean, look what happened to Gary Webb. They attacked him. He got his stuff published on the Contra, you know, drug traffic, uh, connection between the drug traffic and the Contra, the three-way Ricky Ross and the CIA's role. And he was mercilessly attacked in uh, national media, like the Washington Post, or all these hit pieces against him. And then his own newspaper didn't stand by him. And he was demoted and I think ultimately did lose his job. And then... The official claim is that he committed suicide, although many believe that he was actually murdered. So look what happened to him for exposing the CIA's role in the drug traffic. And that's a lesson to anybody not to go into the story, although be ruined. Uh, and it's very rare yet to have anybody. You can't really make a living. Um, so, you know, you have to be either if you have a family that can support you, if you come from wealth or a family or you inherit some money and you can do, you know, maybe publish in some off the beat presses or online, uh, but you're not going to be able to make a living that way. Or if you have another way to make a living and you devote part of your uh, schedule to, to writing those kind of stories, that's the only way you can do it. Cause yeah, you won't be able to work for any uh, mainstream media or, uh, uh, higher education inst uh, institutions, unfortunately. Just check their garage. If you see a Benz, you know where they stand. That's all you got to do. <laughs> yeah, and it leads to, yeah, you know, people, um, unfortunately, yeah, they, they only care about their career advancement and they end up uh, compromising the truth. Um, and that that's really, in a way, a betrayal of their profession because a true journalist or a true scholar, or a true academic, goes for the truth wherever it may lead. And he takes up topics to research that are uh, relevant to society, that are important uh, for people in society to understand better. So if they're, if academics are picking topics that are so obscure that really have no bearing on anybody's life, they're also uh, kind of in a way betraying their, uh, their calling. But unfortunately, yeah, corruption in society has uh, prostituted these professions and Upton Sinclair wrote some good books. You know, it goes back a long way because Upton Sinclair was a great muckracking journalist in the early 1900s. And he, uh, I have one of the books. He wrote a book called The Brass Check about the media. And that's a reference to prostitution. The brass check is what you give to a prostitute. And he likened mainstream journalists to prostitutes. And he had another book uh, on higher education, basically similar analogy. So... Well, Jeremy, I appreciate the time you gave me to do my show. Is there a place where people can find your articles and any other of your books? I know you got an Amazon page, but um, obviously I can link Covert Action uh, Magazine in there as well, too. But do you have Twitter or anything like that? 
Uh, I'm not really on Twitter. No, the best place I do have a personal website, www.jeremykuzmarov.com. And I'll be happy to hear from readers. You can email me jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com. And I'm going to link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.